This morning we're going to be in the book of Mark, Mark chapter number 14, Mark chapter number 14, and uh, before I read these verses, Mark chapter number 14, I want to uh, address something from the message last week. I was reviewing my notes, and uh, sometimes this happens, but uh, we uh, talked about Annas and Caiaphas last week. And uh, in my notes, and I, I haven't listened to the message yet on sermon audio, but I'm certain that I did say this, that uh, Caiaphas had a uh, two-decade span as holy priest, as high, uh, excuse me, as the high priest, and that was incorrect. That was, should be Annas, and I think I did mention Annas, uh, who had uh, influence for two decades over the uh, over uh, the high priesthood, because he not only was high priest, but he had five of his sons that succeeded him. And then Caiaphas was his son-in-law, but I also think I mentioned that during Caiaphas, and that would be incorrect. Caiaphas did not have a two-decade stint as the high priest, so I just want to make sure that, that I clarify that, and also for anybody that might be listening to that on Sermon Audio. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter number 14, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 60 through 65 this morning. Mark chapter number 14, verses 60 through 65. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. This morning we are continuing a series of messages dealing with the murder of Jesus. We are currently looking at Jesus' illegitimate trial This is a message that we started last week, so that would be part one of Jesus' illegitimate trial. This would be part two. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness. We thank you for the Word of God that records exactly what Jesus went through and experienced on our behalf. And Lord, as I think about my own life and my own uh, sins and inadequacies and Lord to think about what Christ endured on my behalf it does uh, cause shame it does cause uh, despair and yet Lord we think about the marvelous work of Christ and his love for us and how that because of what he endured and subjected himself to we are forgiven with you and it isn't our it isn't our works or our walk that makes us right with you but it's the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood that he shed. And Lord, as we think about that sacrifice, we know that that humanly speaking that came to be through his murder. He had done nothing worthy of death, had committed no crime, and yet he was murdered by the authorities. Lord, as we study this subject, help us to stay focused on you and your word. Help us, Lord, to put off all worldly thoughts and all distractions. Lord, help us to desire to gain a a better appreciation of what Jesus has done for his people. We thank you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. It is in his, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The murder of Jesus. 
Jesus' trial was the trial of the ages. And as we mentioned last week as we began this message, it was an illegitimate trial. It was, a, it was an unlawful trial. It was an illegal trial. It was a trial that had no credibility whatsoever. And of course, as a result of this illegitimate trial, Jesus would ultimately be murdered by the authorities. Now we are in the midst of studying the murder of Jesus. And as we've pointed out on multiple occasions, and I want to again just give you the road map for where we're going, we're going to cover at least three different parts to the murder of Jesus. Three weeks ago we began this brief series looking at Jesus' illegal arrest. He was not charged with anything, and yet he was taken and treated as a common malefactor or criminal. Last week we began considering this portion of our study, Jesus' illegitimate trial. And once, we're, once we conclude with this particular portion of our study, we will move on lastly to the inhumane sentence that was carried out as a result of his illegitimate trial. And so this morning, our thoughts remain on the illegitimate trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as we pointed out last week, there are really two phases to Jesus' trial. You may say he actually went through two different trials, and I wouldn't argue with you on that, but I'm saying there are two phases to Jesus' trial. The first phase is what we're currently looking at, and this is Jesus before the Jews, and particularly before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the great Sanhedrin, like the Supreme Court of our United States, they ruled on these matters for the Jews. And then, of course, after Jesus is uh, tried illegitimately by the Sanhedrin, he is then sent to Pilate, and he experiences another phase of his trial, and you might say another completely different trial, but both of these trials in both phases of his trial are illegitimate. They were unlawful. They were illegal. Now, we can't really appreciate Jesus' sacrifice unless we really do understand all that he went through. And I think that sometimes in our Christian walk, we, we're, very, we're very shallow in our study of what the Lord endured on our behalf. Yes, I know Jesus died on a cross for my sins. But do you really grasp all that he went through? And especially when you think about all that he went through and how that you, comparatively speaking, might react if you were to go through the same things that Jesus went through. I believe that helps us have a better appreciation and a better understanding for the Lord's love for us as people. Now, as we think about this illegitimate trial, last week I gave you two main reasons... And remember, these are main reasons. We're categorizing all of the reasons. There are many, many reasons. We're categorizing these reasons under two main reasons. So there are two main reasons that Jesus' trial was illegitimate. Last week, we covered the first main reason. And that is that his trial was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. And if you recall, as we went through this, uh, we pointed out, that uh, again, as we studied during his illegal arrest, the Jews had determined that there was going to be one person that was going to be put to death during this time of the year. You can read Caiaphas' own words in John chapter number 11. And they had formed this conspiracy all the way through Jesus' public ministry that they were going to get this guy and they were going to put him to death. They were going to find a reason to hold him accountable 
and to say, yes, he is worthy of the death penalty. And so, with that thought in mind, we said that, yes, this trial, this main reason, the the trial was illegitimate because it circumvented uh, the Jewish, uh, excuse me, because it was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. Now, in that, we went back and looked at the fact that Jesus... Uh, was uh, going to be found guilty of a capital offense. And that capital offense was going to serve the, form the basis for what they were going to do. And then we moved on from there and looked at a number of different thoughts. And I won't re-preach the message last week again uh, today, but you can go back and consult your notes or you can listen to it on Sermon Audio. And I appreciate Brother Jim posting the message on sermon, messages on Sermon Audio. Now, today we're moving into that second main reason, and I erroneously mentioned it just a moment ago, right? So we're moving into that second main reason that Jesus' trial was illegitimate, and that is, that, that is that his trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure. So two main reasons his trial was illegitimate. The trial was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. They were going to find him guilty of something that would justify the death penalty. And secondly, the trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure, And that is where we're going to spend our time today, looking at that second main reason. The second main reason that Jesus' trial was illegitimate. His trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure. Now, at every turn, and in every way, Jesus' trial abandoned proper court procedure. All of these court procedures and principles were established to ensure that the trials that the Jews held were fair and merciful. And I will tell you this, tomorrow, uh, one of my assistant state's attorneys and I, uh, we work together. It's his case, Mr. Grant Simon. We're going to have a trial tomorrow. And uh, there are umpteen different procedures that we have had to abide by leading up to this trial. And there are umpteen different more that we will have to abide by tomorrow to ensure that the defendant gets a fair trial. That's just a, a, a tenet of any legal procedure. And so the Jews had established these principles and these procedures to ensure that their, their court trials were fair and merciful. Now there are three ways that we want to consider this morning, three ways in which this trial of Jesus, his illegitimate trial, circumvented Jewish court procedure. We'll look at each of these in turn. The first way is that it it circumvented Jewish court procedure by infractions against the rules of evidence. The rules of evidence. Now, I think sometimes we we take for granted that we understand what a term means. And of course, uh, uh, as a as someone who is involved in the legal proceedings here in the United States. Uh, these types of words have specific meanings. For instance, if I were to ask you, what does evidence mean? What, what's the definition of evidence? And we all might be able to give examples of evidence, but what is, what is evidence defined as? Let me give you a legal definition. Evidence covers the burden of proof, admissibility, relevance, weight, and sufficiency of what should be admitted into the record of a legal proceeding. And so there are certain parameters in order for something to be met as evidence. You have to establish a foundation for evidence. 
It has to be relevant. It has to meet all the rules of evidence, okay? So, in other words, you can't just go into a trial and bring up whatever you want to bring up. It's got to be a, it's got to abide by the rules of evidence. Otherwise, you can have a mistrial. And so, what I'm saying is that Jesus' trial did not abide by any of the rules of evidence. They completely threw them out the window. Now, the rules of evidence govern the admissibility of evidence at a trial. You know, and, and uh, for instance, tomorrow. You know, if, if, somebody, if somebody came to us tomorrow and said, you know what, I heard the victim say that the defendant did this. Could I put that individual on the stand? No, because what's that called? It's called hearsay. And the rules of evidence govern hearsay. So these rules of evidence that the Jews had, and by and large they're a lot like our rules of evidence, they were completely thrown out the window. Now think about this. This first rule of evidence. Judges could not initiate the charges. They could only investigate charges that were brought before them. And of course we're talking about the judges here, and I don't want to re-preach last week's message, but you go back and listen to it and review your notes. Remember, there was a civil, civil court system that consisted of three judges that handled monetary and property issues. Then there was a, a, a legal court called the Sanhedrin, and that consisted of 23 judges that handled criminal proceedings, and they could do things like excommunicate or sentence somebody to a scourging. And those, those courts were in every city of the Jews. And then you had the great Sanhedrin, which consisted of 71 members, and it was, it was uh, situated and met only in Jerusalem. And they're like our, our Supreme Court. They handled only the most serious matters or matters that would come to them on appeal. And so if any court should know the rules of evidence, it would be the great Sanhedrin. And so the judges that would sit on the great Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin would know that they're not able... And it's not proper for them to initiate charges against any defendant. They would be violating the Jewish court procedure and their rules of evidence. They could only investigate charges that were brought before them. Now, obviously, why would, why would you want this to be the process? Because you want your judges to be neutral, fair, and impartial. That's the whole reason that this existed. And so, to ensure fairness... The council or the great Sanhedrin could only try cases where an outside party had brought the charges. Now I want to ask you, based upon your recollection of events, is that the case here? It is not the case. In fact, members of the great Sanhedrin, the high priests and so forth, and the elders had gone out and actually participated in the illegal arrest of Jesus. And then they get together in an informal meeting of the great Sanhedrin at Caiaphas's palace, and they trump up these charges against Jesus. And so this was completely against the rules of evidence. Now think about this. If charges against the defendant had been brought by only one council member, the entire council was disqualified from trying the case. And so if only one member of the great Sanhedrin had brought charges, the entire council would be disqualified from hearing the case because, you know, uh, this judge might know this judge, and they might be friends, and they might want to do a quid pro quo. And so, literally, this trial should have stopped right now. 
They should not have even proceeded because there was no legal basis. It was a violation of the rules of evidence. Judges could not initiate charges. They could only investigate charges brought before them. And of course, what do we call this? Uh, What should have been done here? Well, if any judge had brought a charge against Jesus, that judge should have should have uh, said, you know what, we can't proceed with this. We, we need to figure out what we're going to do to make sure that this defendant's rights are not violated, and that did not happen. So that's the first rule of evidence that was completely abrogated and violated. The second rule of evidence is this. There were strange parameters, or rather stringent parameters, set on the rule of two witnesses. Now, do you remember last week we looked in the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, that tells us that, that every matter had to be established at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So that, that rule of evidence that there must be two witnesses, it was not just that there must be two witnesses, but the Jews had established stringent parameters to make sure that this rule was not violated and that this rule had extreme credibility. Now, the, uh, the, the, uh, what I'm going to give you here is some information that's taken from a reference entitled Judicial Procedure in New Testament Times, uh, written by an English fellow by the name of Roy Stewart. Uh, I can share that with you if you like. You can find it. Uh, it's accessible if you want to search for it. But it's a very, very well-written and handy uh, document as it relates to Jewish court procedure. And so... When it comes to stringent parameters being set on the rule of two witnesses, this was established based upon the Jews' extreme reluctance. Are you ready for this? Are you sitting down? To impose the death sentence. So when we read about what they're doing with Jesus, you kind of get, you might kind of get the impression that the Jews were willing to just willy-nilly hand out the death sentence. That's not the case. In fact, the Jews were were generally merciful and very reluctant to impose the death penalty and uh, they were very reluctant to do that even when they had the authority legally to do it now in Jewish court proceedings because of the rule of two witnesses circumstantial evidence was completely disallowed now again I I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but it's necessary for us to understand some of these principles. There are We've already talked about what evidence is, right? There are two types of evidence. There is what is referred to as direct evidence. Direct evidence is, I have a video of defendant shooting victim. That's direct evidence. There's also what is referred to as circumstantial evidence. Do you know that in our court system... You can convict somebody when there is no direct evidence, but when there's a a mountain of circumstantial evidence. So what is circumstantial evidence? Circumstantial evidence is indirect evidence that gives rise to a logical inference that a fact exists. So in other words, if you see uh, Sally uh, running away from a, a crime scene with a bloody knife in her hand, uh, you could infer from that that she she might have committed that crime. Okay, so that's circumstantial evidence. Well, guess what? The Jews were not permitted to introduce any circumstantial evidence in their testimony. So the persons that were serving as the witnesses, it wasn't enough 
for them to just say something. There had to be direct evidence that would tie the individual to the crime. And so persons that were giving evidence that were, that were going to be used under this criteria of the two-witness rule, they had to be of full age, they had to be an adult, they had to possess good character. They could not be persons of questionable character because they were disqualified from being witnesses. Now let me ask you this. If somebody is classified as a false witness, would they not possess questionable character? And yet these are who the great Sanhedrin were were trying to solicit to give testimony. You see how this is being stacked and they're discarding every possible rule of evidence. How about this? In those days, women, children, slaves, and the mentally incompetent were not permitted to testify at all. They could not, persons who were being used under the two-witness rule, they could not be employed in any of the more, and I love the way this is termed, profligate professions. Somebody like a publican, uh, you know, that would be disesteemed. They would not be permitted to be part of the two-witness rule. Uh, If they were related to the accused in any manner, they were not permitted to testify. If they... If they were going to testify, they had to be without personal interest in any matter that would be brought before the court. So there were, there were stringent rules of evidence that the Jews had placed upon the two-witness rule. Now, as you get into the actual trial, the judges were only to elicit contradictions in the evidence by severely cross-examining the witness. In, in other words, the judges were not supposed to uh, cooperate with the prosecution and, and the fix is in to try to get a conviction they were supposed to try to find any contradictions in the evidence that you could find this kind of reminds me and uh, it's a funny story but I had a, a sentencing hearing uh, last year and I think I told you guys about this pretty serious crime here a guy had a, a rape kit and a kill kit and you know so forth and so on he uh, kidnaps his uh, ex-wife and um, so we're having a sentencing here, and the guy had pled guilty, and I'm trying to put this guy away. And so we had uh, our victim witness specialist testify, and uh, in the midst of testifying, the judge started cross-examining the witness. And uh, we're like, what is he doing? And so it's, it's a running joke to this day, you know, that, that the judge actually cross-examined our witness. Uh, so in those times, this was completely appropriate if the judges were seeking to make sure that there was not any contradiction in their testimony. Any circumstantial contradiction would destroy the capital charge. In other words, if there was if there was anything that was contradictory, and of course, what did we read about the, the false witnesses that came together uh, to, to give false testimony about the Lord? Did not the scriptures say that they could not agree on their testimony? There were contradictions on their testimony. And, of course, the principle of evidence, or the principles of evidence, uh, were the same in all cases where a, a human life was involved, where the death penalty was involved. They used the strictest and most tight stringencies that they could. Now, testimony of all of the witnesses had to be precise. It had to be precise as to the date, the time, and the location of the event. So generalities were not permitted. And again, I mention this because you can see how all of these stringent rules that the Jews had in place relating to the rules of evidence were violated in the trial of Jesus, making it an illegitimate trial. Listen to this in Matthew 
chapter number 26, verses 59 and 60. Matthew chapter 29, verse 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, verse 60, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. Folks, these witnesses were legally to be discounted. And yet, they're there because the very judges that are supposed to be ensuring a fair trial are the ones that are soliciting the false testimony. So, the rule of evidence is violated. The stringent rules of the two witnesses were completely thrown out of the window. Thirdly, when we talk about the rules of evidence that were violated, the accused was supposed to be entitled to a public trial. This was completely violated because as we studied last week, and again, for time's sake, we're not going to go back and read all the scriptures, but they arrested Jesus at night, right? Remember, they came with torches and lanterns. They arrest him at night. And where did they take him first? They took him to Annas' house first. He was a well-respected well individual. He had sway over the high priest. And so when he brought him to Annas' house, he spent some time with Annas. Annas, of course, then sends him where? To Caiaphas, the high priest, to Caiaphas' palace. And if you remember, who was present at Caiaphas' palace? The great Sanhedrin. So they are literally carrying out this trial under the darkness of night in Caiaphas's palace, and they are violating Jesus' right to a public trial. Fourthly, people placed on trial, <laughs> go figure here, were entitled to a defense, including the right to call witnesses and present evidence. That is a basic tenet, really, of any legal uh, procedure that uh, follows any standard of fairness whatsoever. The defense is entitled to put on a case. They're entitled to state their uh, evidence. They're entitled to produce witnesses that would testify on their behalf. They have a right to call witnesses and a right to present evidence. Do you ever recall that happening in the case of Jesus? He was never given a right to put up a defense. He was never given a right to call witnesses for himself. He was never given a right to present any evidence. Lastly, as it relates to their violations of the rules of evidence, the accused was presumed innocent until an official guilty verdict was reached. So you know this, and we mentioned this last week. In our legal system, you are charged with a crime. If you are charged with a crime, you are presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. That was not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was presumed to be guilty, and there was no way that they were going to allow him to be proven innocent. And so they violated that fifth rule of evidence that the Jews had. He was to be presumed innocent until the official guilty verdict was reached. And so the first way, the first way, that this trial was illegitimate and that it circumvented the Jewish court procedure is that it infringed on the rules of evidence. The second way is that it infringed 
on the rights of the defendant. So you've got rules of evidence that we went through. Now we get into specific rights of the defendant. Specific rights that Jesus had. And you know, again, using illustrations that might be comparable to our legal procedure. If you are arrested, or if you are brought in and it's really what's called a custodial interrogation. If you are brought into the police department and you're asked to answer questions, and you are determined to be in custody, right? And that means that the normal person wouldn't feel like they're free to leave. What has to happen before you can answer any questions? You have to have your rights read to you. And in our system here in, in the county, the uh, officers read each individual right. They have the uh, defendant read a couple of them out loud to make sure that they know them and they understand they have them initial them. So they can't come back and say, well, I was never read my rights. It's on video, it's all recorded, and we have your, uh, your form here where you initialed. Now, we take the rights of the defendant very seriously. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it seems like, and sometimes people get frustrated, including myself with our legal system, it seems like the defendant has more rights than a victim. And all of this is designed to ensure that we do not prosecute an innocent person. We don't, I do not want to prosecute somebody who is innocent. I don't want to just get a hide to hang on the wall. I don't want to say, hey, we got a conviction on this. If they're innocent, they should not be held accountable for something they did not do. You would want that in your life, right? You don't want to have to go to prison. You don't want to have to have a conviction for something that you did not do. And so, so the rights of the defendant are very important and, again, a legal a fair legal process and procedure. Now notice notice the way in which Jesus' rights were violated. We're talking about his illegitimate trial and the fact that his trial was illegitimate because it circumvented the Jewish court procedure at every turn. First of all, during the trial, the defense was given the opportunity to have the first word before prosecutors could present the accusations. Now, do you notice anything peculiar about that? If you've ever watched any movie or any show dealing with our legal procedure, you probably know that that is inverse of what we do. In our case, tomorrow, you know who goes first? The prosecution. We will make our opening statement, then the defense will make their opening statement. Then we will put on what's called our case in chief. The prosecution in our legal system always goes first, but not in the Jewish system. In the Jewish system, the defense went first before the prosecutors could present their evidence and present their case. The defense provided all the reasons why the accused could not be guilty of anything that they were charged with, and they were also given the opportunity to present their character witnesses. Then, the two to three witnesses for the prosecution would officially be presented as the accusations against the defendant. Now, do you remember Jesus ever being called in and giving, given an opportunity to present any type of defense? Because it didn't happen. They completely circumvented his right to put on a defense first. Secondly, when we talk about the rights of the defendant, on the on the the, the uh, bench, the, the judges that were trying the case, or anybody else that would be involved in the process, all parties could argue in favor of acquittal 
but not all parties could argue in favor of conviction. In other words, it could be unanimous, and everybody could say that the defendant did not do it, but it was not allowed that all could argue that the defendant did do it. And this is an extreme right that defendants enjoyed. So, so under Jewish criminal law, and I, I've given you some references to where I take some of this information from, I want to literally quote to you how one uh, uh, scholar on the Jewish legal procedure defined it. He says that it was permissible to stack the deck in favor of the accused, but not against him. So in other words, you could stack the deck to show that Jesus was innocent, but you could not stack the deck to show that he was guilty. Well, stacking the deck is a term that describes specifically what they did. They stacked the deck against Jesus to prove that he was guilty. It was permissible for everyone to argue for acquittal, but not to argue for conviction. The accused in, a, in any trial, now think about this, the accused had to have at least one person defending them. Do you recall how many Jesus had? Was there any that defended Jesus? In fact, let's go back a little bit in our Bible history in the New Testament. You remember when Jesus was describing to his disciples what was going to happen? And, and he said that, man, all, all are going to, you're going to forsake me. And Peter said what? Oh, I'll never forsake you. And, and by the way, don't just blame it on Peter because there's one of the Gospels that says, and so said they all. They all said that they would not abandon Jesus in his hour of need. Well, how'd that work out? In fact, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about what would happen to Jesus the Messiah over 700 years before it actually occurred. In Isaiah chapter 53, in verse number 3, here Isaiah prophesying about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, in verse number 3, listen to this. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Nobody would stand up for Jesus. And we read that in Mark chapter number 14 in our text verses. Mark chapter number 14 in verse number 50 where there the Bible says, And they all forsook him and fled. Nobody stood with the Lord. It was proper that the defendant have one person that would stand up for them and argue with them their case. And he had nobody. He not only suffered and died alone on the cross, but he suffered alone during his illegal arrest and also during his illegitimate trial. This third way in which the rights of Jesus the defendant were violated, there was to be no allowance for the accused to testify against himself. Now think about that. In our court system, a defendant cannot be forced to testify. But do you know what? A defendant has a right to testify. And it's, it's our guess that the defendant in the trial tomorrow is going to try to take the stand and explain himself. This is common when you're dealing with sociopaths and psychopaths and narcissists. They think that they can fool everybody into believing what they have to say. By the way, any defense attorney worth his salt will always tell you, don't ever testify if you're the defendant. Okay? So in our system, the defendant does not have to testify, but he can if he desires to. Well, guess what? 
In Jewish court procedure, there was to be no allowance for the defendant to actually testify, and certainly to testify against himself. The Bible says, or not the Bible, but the Jewish court procedure says that this was done for two possible situations. One, that a man might be suicidal and confess to a crime that he didn't commit. And secondly, he might be trying to protect somebody who was actually guilty. And by the way, I'll just mention this in passing. The phenomena of false confessions is amazing. And you say, well, I would never confess to something I did not do. And folks, that happens all the time. And I mean, there are there's cases. Or I, I give you a case out in Idaho where a guy conf- finally confessed to killing a young lady. Uh, her name was Angie Dodge, and he spent 20-something years in prison. And guess what? He didn't do it. He did not do it. DNA proved that he didn't do it. And so uh, we've talked to, as well about uh, other situations where people would confess and they actually did not do it. Well, these rules were in place so that the defendant would not be brought in to testify against himself. And, uh, of course, again, his his testimony could not even be counted among the required two witnesses. So you couldn't have the defendant testifying that he did it and then another witness saying he did it, and that be your two witnesses. The defendant could not be counted in that. The defendant was not permitted. Fourthly, the great Sanhedrin council consisting of the 71 judges, they were to be impartial and not act as a prosecutor. So you've got different parties involved in the, in the court procedure. You've got the prosecution, you've got the defense, you've got a court reporter, you've got a court clerk, you've got a bailiff that keeps order, you've got the jury, you've got the judge. Okay. Now guess what? The judge is not allowed to act as a prosecutor. By the way, not allowed to act as a defense attorney either, okay? But but he could not act as a prosecutor, okay? He cannot openly solicit damaging testimony against the defendant. Now, now I want you to think about that. This is this is this is a this is a principle that the rights of the defendant dictated that the judge could not question the defendant and try to get the defendant to incriminate himself. They were not permitted to do that. And yet, what were the members of the Sanhedrin doing, and specifically Caiaphas speaking for the Sanhedrin? They were openly trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 and 63. Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? Which is it which these witness against thee? Or excuse me, what is it which these witness against thee? Verse 63, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now this was true that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And yet you have the high priest putting Jesus under oath and saying, I adjure thee, testify against yourself. And it was a complete abrogation of Jesus' right as a defendant. And then fifthly, a person cannot be condemned solely on the basis of his own words. This is not permitted. The rule emphasized the necessity of having two outside witnesses. Well, what happened in the trial of Jesus? In Luke chapter 22, verses 70 and 71. In Luke chapter 22, verses 70 and 71, Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And so they are violating a number of rules. The rule of two witnesses, 
the rule that the defendant could not testify and incriminate himself, and the fact that they're the ones that are questioning him and soliciting the information, they violate all of these rules and condemn Jesus on the basis of his own words. That makes this an illegitimate trial. And then the third way that the trial circumvented Jewish court procedure and made it an illegitimate trial is that the religious and ritualistic rules of the Jews were violated. So we've talked about rules of evidence. We've talked about the rights of the defendant. Now we want to talk about specific religious and ritualistic rules of the Jews. Now this information is taken from a work called Yeshua, the Life of Messiah, from a Jewish perspective. Uh, this is written uh, by, an amb- by a man by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And I'm giving you some specific uh, quotes here and some specific information detailed from his work. And these were religious and ritualistic rules that the Jews had that governed trials. First of all, there were to be no trials before the morning sacrifice. Remember in the temple, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. There was to be no trials before the morning sacrifice. All of the daily morning rituals in the temple had to be completed before any trial could be conducted. That didn't happen in the case of Jesus because they started in the middle of the night. Criminal trials were not to be convened at night. And again, trials that were underway as nighttime fell were to be immediately recessed and court would be recessed until the following day after the morning sacrifices and then they would be continued. That did not happen in the case of Jesus. There were to be no secret trials, only public trials. We talked about that just a little while ago, secret trials were forbidden in order to avoid the possibility of, can you guess this? A conspiracy. And exactly what the rule was set to do or to prevent the, the great Sanhedrin and the Jews did. Jesus was taken to Annas, then Caiaphas where the Sanhedrin was convened in secret and then they take a little bit of a break, a couple hour break in the morning and then they reconvene the great Sanhedrin in the actual place where they were supposed to meet. Which means that that leads us to this violation. The Sanhedrin trials, the great Sanhedrin trials, could only be conducted in the hall of judgment in the temple and no place else. So it wasn't like, can you imagine if the the Supreme Court said, hey, you know what, instead of conducting our proceedings here in Washington, D.C., where we're supposed to be conducting them, we're all going to meet at Justice Roberts' house tonight and we're going to do this in our own, and nobody will be able to have, hear any of the proceedings or anything of the, case, of, of the sort. That would be ridiculous. And so, as we talked about last week, great Sanhedrin trials, they were only to be held in one room, the Hall of Judgment. Uh, this was known as the Lishkat Hagaza, and that was also, in English, the Chamber of Hewn Stones. That's where the great Sanhedrin met, and they didn't do that in the case of Jesus. They eventually did it, but they did it after they had met secretly and already determined what they were going to do. The high priest, in any proceeding, was forbidden to rend his garments. Now, the high priest, remember, was uh, the one that sat as the president of the great Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the great Sanhedrin. The high priest served as the president and the 71st member, and of course, the the number there was odd, so you, you wouldn't have a tie in votes, and the 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 high priest was supposed to set the example for everyone else, uh, kind of be like our chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he was supposed to abide uh, emphatically and, and, and uh, without error all of the rule. He was to abide by all the rules and not give any occasion for anybody to say that well, there was any wrongdoing on the part of the high priest. 
So the high priest was forbidden to rend his garments. In the Jewish context, rending of your garments was a sign of emotion, right? And you, this is mentioned frequently in the Bible where somebody would rend their garments or tear their garments. They would smite their breast when they were repenting. Uh, they would, the Bible says, repent in sackcloth and ashes. These were signs of emotion, and the high priest was not to show any emotion because the trial was to be decided on the facts presented and the evidence presented and not on emotion. Now listen to this in Leviticus chapter 21 and verse number 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the, the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. The high priest was prohibited from doing that. Now look at Matthew chapter four, or excuse me, Mark chapter fourteen, verses sixty-one through sixty-three. Mark chapter fourteen, verses sixty-one through sixty-three. Uh, let's see here. I think I've written down. I think it's Matthew. Actually, you know what? I'm going to forego looking at that because we've read it on multiple occasions and our time is almost done. I'll give you the reference later, but there's clearly in two different passages of the Gospels where Caiaphas, the high priest, rends his clothes uh, because of what Jesus says. And so he's, he's emphatically infringing upon that rule. Uh, and then how about this? Number six, the verdict could not be announced at night. The rule was to avoid a rush to judgment uh, it could be a long day in, in trial. The judges had to wait until the next day to announce the verdict, even if they knew what the verdict would be. And this, of course, was not done in the case of Jesus. Number seven, and finally, in the case of capital punishment, the trial and a guilty verdict could not occur at the same time, but they had to be separated by at least 24 hours. Now, this 24-hour period was for the purpose of allowing more time or information to become available, which might favor the accused. It was an obligatory time of fasting. And so this was a ritualistic rule of the Jews. They arrive at a verdict. They had to wait 24 hours to announce it. They would fast and consider and pray to God that they're doing the right thing. And afterward, the council members were polled one by one to see if they had changed their opinions. Now I mentioned that a few weeks ago, it's probably been a month ago, uh, one of our assistant state's attorneys had a trial and uh, the, uh, the, the jury comes back and uh, says that they found the defendant guilty. So then the defense asks for the jurors to be polled and uh, they get to juror number six or seven and guess what? Juror says, you know, I changed my mind. I want to vote not guilty. So you, you come back with a guilty verdict. Juror changes his mind. By the way, many people in the office that have been here many, many years in the state's attorney's office said, man, we haven't seen that happen before. So now, now uh, in a couple weeks, she's got to have another trial because that was a mistrial. Okay? So here, the, the members of the great Sanhedrin were polled to see if they had changed their opinion on the guilt of the, of the individual. Guilty verdicts could be overturned. But a not guilty verdict, uh, uh, yes, a not guilty verdict could not be rescinded. So in other words, if they were found not guilty at the end of the trial, after the 24-hour period, they could not change it to guilty. But they could change a guilty after the 24-hour period to a not guilty. And so, again, these rules were infringed upon. We've read time and again 
the procedure by which Jesus was tried. They go arrest him. They bring him in like a common criminal. They take him to Annas' house, then to Caiaphas, the high priest. They question him there before, uh, uh, before the great Sanhedrin. They determined that he's going to be guilty of what they wanted him to be guilty of. They had sought false witnesses. These false witnesses came, presented their testimony. They take a couple hour break. Then the next morning they form the great Sanhedrin publicly. And they, they, they want everybody to believe like, oh look, we did it proper. And they didn't. They were liars. And they circumvented at every turn Jewish court procedure. That made Jesus' trial an illegitimate trial. I'm going to close with a quote uh, from John MacArthur who wrote uh, a book on the murder of Jesus. It uh, seems to be a really good work. He gets into a lot of other peripheral areas other than just the murder of Jesus. But uh, you can also uh, check that out if you like. But listen to what MacArthur writes. Caiaphas convened a hasty meeting of the Sanhedrin and Christ was immediately put on trial in the middle of the night. The charges against him were trumped up and the witnesses against him were bribed. The entire trial was a complete mockery of justice. By all the biblical standards that were supposed to govern the dispensation of justice in Israel, the trial was illegal and its verdict unjust. And we echo that. We've covered that. If this were a trial in our court system today, the overwhelming evidence that the prosecution has presented showing that this is an illegitimate trial even in our county, we'd, we'd get a conviction. Okay, It's an illegitimate trial. There are two main reasons that Jesus' trial was illegitimate. We looked last week as the, at the fact that it was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. They had it in for Jesus. They stacked the deck. They were going to put him to death. And then secondly, this morning, the trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure. Now, what happens next? The Jews, having determined Jesus guilty of death, next bring him to Pilate. And if you think what we saw in this phase of Jesus' illegitimate trial was bad, wait till we get into Jesus before Pilate. Because the Jews really show their true color and who they are in presenting Jesus as only there for Pilate to sanction the death penalty and to crucify Jesus. Jesus' trial was illegitimate. He was murdered at the hands of not only the Jews, but the Romans as well. Let's pray.